0: Hey, uh, my name is Nate, I serve as a a husband, dad, and uh, one of the pastors under our lead pastor, Larry, grateful to be with you. I was reading Psalm 25 this past week, Psalm 25, verses 4 through 5 says this, this has been my prayer for my heart for this Sunday morning and for you as well, for those that the Lord would bring here. Make me to know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths, lead me in your truth and teach me. And so we want to be under the word, right? We don't want to sit over top of it. We don't want to sit to the left of it, to the right of it. We want to be under the word and let the word be our guide as we submit to the spirit of God. Benedict Ward said this. I was reading this a couple weeks ago and I thought it was an apt saying as we're in our seventh sermon and share hope. And you may feel discouraged. Maybe you don't, but you might feel discouraged about this discipline as you reflect upon your life. I don't share hope. If somebody were to ask me about, hey, what's the hope that you have in Jesus? I don't know what to say, or I would be so overwhelmed with um, anxiety and worry. I don't, I don't think I'd be able to speak, or I know that I'm supposed to, but I don't. And so you, you might be thinking, man, another sermon on evangelism, on sharing your faith, and I feel beat up. Here's a quote I came across. Benedict Ward said this, I have seen a man on the bank of the river buried up to his knees in mud, And some men came to give him a hand to help him out, but they pushed him further in up to his neck. Sometimes preaching is like that. It's not meant to be where you want to be encouraged and refreshed. And you think about the sermon and your life and you're a little discouraged. And so we want to encourage you uh, that hopefully there has been movement in your life. As we're in the seventh sermon, as I already said, and, and share hope, maybe you're not aware of lostness. You just go throughout the rhythms of your week Throughout your day, and, and you don't see people the way Jesus sees people. If you begin to see people the way Jesus sees them, that's a win. That's good. There's traction, movement. Maybe you, you need to go to Growth Track. Maybe you need to leave right now and go to Growth Track to discover your voice about how to share your faith because I know that I see people the way Jesus sees them, but I, I don't know how to articulate the gospel. And by the way, you don't need to know answers to all of these crazy metaphysical questions. It's great to know those. But the power is not in our arguments. The power is in the simplicity of the gospel message, which is why a six-year-old can go to the kingdom of heaven and maybe a 65-year-old won't. There's a simplicity to it. So all you need to know is the power of the gospel, that message. So if there's movement, hey, I need to go to growth track to learn how to share my faith. We just want there to be movement. We are in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. It'll be, several verses will be on the screen. If you have the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 742, 742. And let's read verses 18 through 23 together. If you will, if you'll stand, if you're physically able to, let's read the Bible together. This is God's voice to us. If you ever hear somebody say, hey, God was speaking to me. Um, And oftentimes we think about circumstances or visions and various things. When people say, hey, God spoke to me, you should say, what chapter and verse? Because he speaks through his word. He speaks through his word. So here's what God has said to us. Verse 18, and if you want to read it along with me, you're welcome to. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, redirecting redirecting him back to the Bible. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, I have kept all these from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the rich young ruler heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely Rich, this is God's word to us. May God bless the preaching and the hearing of it. Let's pray together. Father, I pray as I preach and as I listen to your word and as we listen to the Bible that we would not sit over top of it, but that there would be an attentiveness in our heart. That we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, that you would confront and expose our sin and our lack of fellowship, our lack of making Jesus king in our lives where you need to expose and confront. We welcome you. Father, this is not about the sinfulness of wealth. This is about the disposition of our heart and that Jesus, you would be supreme. You'd be king, Lord, savior, Messiah, the first in our lives. We pray that that would be the case. In Christ and we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A friend of mine shared this story with me. He bought a house for $267,000, a little higher than the median um, household price here, house purchase price here. He lived in a particular city where the cost of living was a little higher, so bought a house for $267,000. The way they um, constructed the loan, he had a 80% 80% loan, a 15% loan, and he put 5% down. It was back in the day when they did things like no doc loans, like you didn't have to furnish documents, right? Which is crazy to me that they did that. Now you have to like sign your name in blood and promise your third born child to get, to get money. And, and so uh, about a year later, he tells me that he got some inheritance money. And so he paid off the 15% of his loan, about $48,000, as he tells me, paid off some other debt. Bought a new used car. His house that he lived in was built in 1977 and it was very energy inefficient. He had an electric bill the month of August and September that was 450, then 550. 455. Yeah, that's right. 450, 550. So a lot of money. And so they made their home energy efficient. They got new windows and ductwork and insulation, an AC unit, and did some other things in the house. Well, fast forward about about six months later after they made a lot of these um, renovations and remodeled some of their home, paid off a lot of debt, there are some things going on in a particular pastor's life, not the lead pastor, that were really egregious, really, really serious. And not one of those gray areas, like there's lots of issues in the Christian life that we are allowed to have freedom upon that are, it's okay if we differ. Like, you know, some Christians will rail on Halloween and say, it's an evil, wicked holiday, you should never do it. And some Christians say, well, it's a great opportunity because everybody comes out of their house and we get to know their names. There's freedom. So if you had that perspective, hold it with compassion and you're not God's gift in terms of truth for the world. And so, but this was not, this was not one of those issues. It was a black and white issue. And this pastor was engaged in some really sinful things. And if you were to know these things, you would not want to follow this pastor. As he said, follow me as I follow Jesus. And so this, this particular individual went to the lead pastor and said, I love you, I care for you, but I can't support this decision to keep this guy on staff because this is really big. And if the congregation found out, we, it would divide the congregation. And, and he's unfit to be pastor and so what happened as he says they quarantined the staff and made him clean out his office and and he got dismissed he got a severance and um, and oftentimes in the church world a severance my understanding and how I describe a severance is called hush-up money so we want you to hush up and not say anything about what happened because you could potentially lose your salary and compensation that we're going to give to you for a period of time if you keep your mouth uh quiet um well, he bought a house for 267, and he sold his house for a whopping 122, because he bought in 2007, and what happened around that time? Man, the market tanked. So he bought for 267 and 122. I went to UK twice, so I'm still really bad at math. But I, that's that's not good. Okay, that's really not good. And he paid off a debt about 48,000 dollars. Paid off some other debt of about 30. Put about 60,000 dollars into his house. He lost a quarter of a million dollars. And in the midst of that, um, he says that it did not overwhelm him. It it, it did not crush him. And for everybody in this room, whether you're really wealthy or not wealthy, a quarter of a million dollars is a lot of money. In that particular season, this particular guy's life, it did not overwhelm him, it did not crush him because he knew he was doing the right thing and he wanted to be a man of integrity wanted to submit to truth, and he knew that Jesus would sustain him, and Jesus is more than sufficient in the midst of losing literally a quarter of a million dollars. Well, I'm sure if you were to ask him, did you like learning the lesson about loving money and putting Jesus first in that particular way, he might say, well, I'd be okay if Jesus wanted to teach me another way about how to love him. Uh, I'd be okay with that. I'm sure he would say that. As we look at the rich young ruler, you might be tempted to think, oh, this is a sermon about wealthy people and how they love their wealth, and it could potentially keep them from heaven. That is true. That's part of it. But it's not about wealth. Jesus is not saying that money is inherently sinful. He says that the love of money is inherently sinful. Because when we love things in an inordinate fashion, we put them into a place where they should not be, and we push Jesus to the peripheral of our life, and Jesus should always be on the forefront of our Life, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This text is about what do you treasure? What do you treasure? So, here in about 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 62 minutes, whenever we get done, um, it'll be shorter than that, I promise. I'm gonna ask you to respond. Okay, so I'm telling you what, I'm telling you, here's the application. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm gonna ask you to respond, and it's this. There are people in the room with this many people in the room. Undoubtedly, there are people who are trusting in themselves. If you were to ask them, hey, if you were to die today, where are you going to go? They say, well, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I've been at Grayson for 30 years. I've served. I give. I'm, I'm a pretty moral, religious person because we all want to believe the best about ourselves. We don't want to believe that if I'm really moral and religious, that I, I may go to hell, even though I don't know Christ. I mean, God's going to somehow let me in because I'm a moral person. No, he only grades on pass-fail. Do you know Christ? Have you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus? And an unbeliever is somebody who's yet to come to a position where they treasure Jesus as supreme. Okay, so if you're not a believer, I'm going to ask you to come. And I want you to know that Jesus treasures you above all things. He loves you. And you can have hope and joy and freedom. And we share hope because anything is possible. As Jesus agrees with those listening to this exchange, they say, if this rich man can't be saved, who can be saved? It must be impossible. And Jesus says, yeah, it is impossible with you because you can't change your hearts and you can't change other people's hearts. But with God, anything is is possible. So that's why we share hope because it doesn't matter how far away someone is from God, God can change their hearts, can't they? Because he changed your heart, he changed my heart. And I was far from God. So if you're not a Christian, I'm going to ask you to respond. Secondly, there's probably a lot of people in the room that are Christians. And yet, as you reflect upon your life, in each and every person in the room who's a believer, there are areas where we have not yielded or don't want to yield to the kingship of Jesus. And that's the point of the text. What do you treasure? So I'm going to ask you to move to the right, move to the left, Come pray a prayer of confession, a prayer of commitment. Maybe somebody needs to encourage you. One of the questions on the bulletin is, what did I hear? What do I need to believe and do? I need to treasure Jesus. Who's going to hold me accountable? Who's going to speak into my life? So I'm going to ask you in just a moment to come. Now, it always helps when you read the Bible to read the passages before and after the particular text that's being preached or that you're studying. In verses 15 through 17, you have the subheading, let the children come to me. You know, in the Bible, there is never a description of the adults of the kingdom of God or the mature people of the kingdom of God or the seasoned mature people of the kingdom of God. There's only the description, the children of God. Why? Because what do children do? In innocent, in reliance, in faith, and trust, they believe the Father and they come to Jesus in simplicity, but as we grow up, we, got it, we say, it's got to be more difficult. It's got to be more arduous and complex than simply repentance and faith. And Jesus says, it's not. It's not. This guy comes and asks a question. And he is wealthy monetarily. The Bible says that he was very wealthy. And he is wealthy morally. He is a religious moral guy. He is like some of my friends who are not Christians that are good husbands and good dads and good wives and good moms and good neighbors and good workers. And they're generous and kind. And you might look at them and say, I don't know if they need Jesus. And we have to remind ourselves morality, uh, meritorious achievements, religiosity, behavior does not actually take away our sins. Only Jesus does. But this is a good guy. This is a guy that you can model your life after in many regards. And yet in his morality and in his wealth, there's something that he's missing. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? With all the things that are going right in his life, there is still enough spiritual self-awareness to know that he does not have the certainty of eternal life. That's a question everybody in the room should ask. Do I have eternal life? Just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity as we stand to sing and song response. You can nail that down today. You can know. You can go out of here with certainty. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. You can know it. What great confidence and courage we can have. Well, Jesus redirects him to the Bible, and he lists out the five commandments. Adultery, murder, stealing, bearing false witness, and honoring your father and mother. And each of these commandments are meant to expose in his heart this self-oriented, selfish nature. And he says, I've kept all these from my youth. I don't think he was lying. I think externally, as he reflected upon his life, he really believed with all of his heart that he had actually not murdered, not stolen, honored mom and dad. He not committed adultery. And this is what we do when we look at the Ten Commandments. We think, check, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I've not murdered anybody. I've not committed adultery. I've not stolen anything. But let me just walk through these. To not commit murder. Now, probably, I've, I've been in a room before um, overseas and said, you know, I would imagine most of the people in the room have not murdered. And there, ha- there actually was someone in the room who had murdered. So that kind of um, was interesting. And, but the genesis of murder is hate is anger. Have you ever been angry? Like, I know most of us think that we have righteous anger. You don't, okay? You have sinful anger. Um, Anger is this whole person response that's towards some perceived injustice that's thrust upon us, right? So when I get offended, and I feel disrespected, and people don't give me the benefit of the doubt, and people don't listen to all my words, and we get angry. That's a whole... Have you ever noticed like when you're offended, like every ounce of your being is laser focused upon the offense thrust upon you? My affections, my words, my thoughts, my actions, my disposition, I mean everything, because they've just offended me. Anger. The genesis of murder, the beginning of murder is anger. Have you ever been angry? Well, not just angry, Um, Have you ever sped on 265? Larry Riley, our lead pastor, asked me this morning. I did not appreciate it at all. How long does it take you to get to New Albany? And we just moved, and I said 10, 11 minutes, because I was speeding like a champ. And I'm thankful to Jesus. I mean this, Jesus. I'm thankful that you saw fit, Romans 13, to move the speed limit from 55 to 65 on 265. Thankful, (laughs) so thankful, because it means I go 75, okay? Okay. And, I, and I'm being reckless with the people around me. Do you text and drive? Some of you said no, thinking you're holier than not. I don't text and drive. Well, you go 74. Okay, whatever it is. The, 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 the sixth commandment is not just don't murder, but it's also be mindful of the people's lives around you. So when you speed, and Larry too, when you speed, I've been in the car with him. When you speed or you text and drive, or you're not paying attention, you're not being mindful of the people around you and you're breaking the sixth commandment. Welcome to Graceland, you are a lawbreaker, okay? The seventh commandment forbids any kind of sexual misconduct. The ninth commandment, not just stealing, that's the negative, don't steal, but the positive understanding of the ninth commandment is to be generous. Generous with your time, yeah, I got that, I want to be generous with my time, generous with my talents, my gifts, I want to serve. Generous with your money. Jesus said a lot about money. Are you generous with your money? I gave an example in the first service. I don't know if it landed hard or soft. But if you make $50,000 and you give $1,000 to the church, I'm I'm just wondering, do you think that's generous? 100 bucks a month, is that generous? I don't know. The Bible calls it to be a cheerful, sacrificial giver. So the positive expression of the commandment, number nine, is that I would be generous with my time, talent, and money. Each commandment that Jesus gives to the rich young ruler is meant to expose and affirm what's ruling his heart. And what's ruling his heart is morality and the treasure that he has, the money that he has. So what's ruling your heart? What rules your heart? What governs your affections? What's number one? What's the priority? What do you have that if taken away, your life would fall apart? Retirement, a house, a relationship, money, what, what is it? We all treasure something or someone. So I'm going to ask in just a moment, if you're not a Christian, you can become a Christian today. You can be the recipient of the most amazing, powerful love that the world's ever known. And you can be forgiven. And for those that are Christians, a lot of us in the room, as you reflect upon your life, Psalm 25, teach me your past. Teach me your word, O oh Lord. We want to have an attentiveness to our heart in each and every one of our lives. There's areas that we need to continue to surrender and submit to the kingship of Jesus. There is a self-sufficiency and self-reliance in this guy's response. He should have gotten down on his knees and said, Help me, Lord. I am a sinner. I want eternal life, but I have not perfectly obeyed the law. Jesus gives them a word of response, what do the scriptures say, right? The scriptures do that. The Bible is not just a book that we read, but it's a book that reads us, right? Have you ever you read the Bible or listened to a sermon or been in a group and you thought, man, that's, that's hitting home. That's the spirit of God taking the word of God and examining our hearts and our motives and our intentions, And the rich young ruler says it's not worth it. The stakes are too high. He was not going to sell all his possessions because his salvation, his security, his purpose, his significance was found in stuff rather than in Jesus. C.S. Lewis, a philosopher and theologian who's written a lot of books, said this about this particular text. There is no region, even in the innermost depths of one's soul, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with the notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted some area, however small, of which I could say to all other things and to all other persons, this is my business and mine alone. Is that you? It's been me at times. Jesus, don't you get up in my business. I don't want you dabbling in that area of my life. That's that's what I want. Don't get involved. Don't get engaged. Jesus, you can have all of this, but I want this. Jesus is the king of the universe. If you're a believer, your life has been purchased not with precious metals, as Peter says, but with the blood of the sovereign king of the world. We have no right to tell him, you can't touch that. What do you treasure? What do you love? What brings you purpose? The rich young ruler was sad. In your app, on the sermon notes, and in the bulletin, there's two understandings of sadness. You have worldly sadness and godly sadness. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that worldly sadness leads to destruction, So there's a sadness and there's a grief over sin that does not lead us to Jesus. It's the same word, that that word sad, is the same word that's used to describe the emotional toil and grief when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's overcome with grief, remember that? And he says in, in his humanity, if there is any other way that sinful mankind and womankind can be redeemed, let it be known, but not my will, your will, overcome with grief. His grief moved him to the Father, didn't it? The rich young ruler's grief, his sadness, does not move him to the Father, moves him away. Godly contrition, godly sadness moves us to be broken of our sin rightly and to respond with faith. Right? So I have four kids, and and you have kids and grandkids, you you work With people, you've got subordinates. And when when a subordinate or a child or a grandchild, they get caught, a lot of times they exemplify worldly sadness, right? I'm sorry I got caught. Shoot, I'm not going to get technology for two days. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm going to be put on probation or a performance evaluation or there's going to be tighter accountability circles in my life. That's That's not a godly sadness. Godly sadness is, Father, I know that you are the... You're the God of the world. I live in your world, and you give instructions and ways in which I should live. I'm sorry. I I offended. I grieved you. I, 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 I disrespected you. I don't believe you're good, and I wanted to take things into my own hands. So will you please forgive me? When my kids and your kids or grandkids, when they come to you and say, Dad, Mom, grand, Granddad, Stepmom, I, I'm sorry that I disobeyed you, and, and, it's, and it grieves me that I've offended you, like, don't you just want to stop? Stomp for joy and like do jumping jacks, like they're getting it. It's not about just doing the right thing, it's doing the right thing with the right heart, the right motive. But this rich young ruler is very sad. And Jesus is trying to, I think, share hope with him. And we want to share hope because anything is possible. It doesn't matter how far away we think people are, anybody can come to faith, anybody can be saved. Anybody can be forgiven. Well, what is Jesus doing in this passage? He's exposing that the rich and ruler does not love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Really what he loves and treasures is treasure, is material wealth, is money. And the things that money brings, houses and boats and friends and amenities and comforts and conveniences and vacations. And I'm not above that. I like what money brings. And oftentimes I have to repent of my love for money and reorient my affections to Jesus. And that's what he's doing. If you want to receive eternal life, sell all that your possessions. So is he is he railing on wealthy people? No, he's not railing on wealthy people. He's railing on and exposing people who have a heart that's yielded to wealth over above Jesus. Right? So this is he's kind of doing like an intervention because Zacchaeus is not told to sell all that he possesses, only half. Nowhere else in Scripture do we see this. So what is he doing? He's doing like a Jesus intervention, like you would do with an alcoholic or somebody addicted and enslaved to porn or somebody addicted and enslaved to prescription meds. If you've got somebody who wants to be serious about not taking prescription meds or not drinking alcohol because they are enslaved to it or not looking at images on a screen or a tablet, what do you do? You remove all of it, right? You get rid of the access, you get rid of the alcohol, you get rid of the prescription meds. And what he's doing is saying, listen, if you really want to take serious a fellowship of me and to know with definitiveness and with certainty how you can have eternal life, sell all that you possess because it is a stumbling block, it's going to keep you from heaven. Would you rather go to hell and have all your riches? Would you rather go to hell? Heaven maimed because you gouged out your eye or you gouged, cut off your right hand because there's things in our life that causes us to sin. And I want to go to heaven maimed rather than to go to hell with all of my stuff. He was sad. But his sadness did not move him to Jesus. And the people there ask, if this wealthy man cannot be saved, who in the world can be saved? Because they bought in to the prosperity gospel. God gives wealth, the people he's pleased with. And if you're wealthy and affluent and a person of prestige and influence, then certainly you're going to go to heaven because God is pleased with you. And all the poor people who, who are looking for jobs, who have unfavorable circumstances, who have physical health problems, God is displeased with them and they ain't getting in. But all the people over here that are, well, they're getting in. And so when Jesus says, this man's not getting in, they're like, how in the world can anybody be saved if the rich man can't? And Jesus agrees with them. You're right. It's impossible with you and me to bring about the kingdom of heaven, for us to usher ourselves in heaven. But with God, anything is, let's say it together, with God, anything is possible. We need to stop not believing that God can save people. So there's been on social media, if you're on Facebook and Twitter and news, Kanye West, who was formerly this egregious, crass rapper, um, had people call him Jesus. I mean, that's how people, he he say, hey, call me this. And he's he's come to faith in the last couple weeks. And it's so annoying listening to all the Christians pontificate about whether or not he's genuine, whether or not he could be really saved. God can save anybody and everybody, according to the Bible, is far away from God. You're far off just as more explicit than others. We hide our far offness in our heart. But we're all far off. We're all far away. We all need God to save, save us. And so it, I think we have a very low view of the sovereignty and the power and the goodness of God. With God, anything is possible. Anything is possible. And so what does Jesus do? Look at verse 25. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Again, he's not hating on wealth. He's hating on the fact and exposing, does your wealth own you? Does your wealth own you? Does a particular relationship own you? Does a particular addiction or enslavement own you? Does a particular vice own you? And even in my own life, I have to remember, I need a tight grip on Jesus and a loose grip on the things of the world. But so often I have a tight grip on all the stuff that I have and a loose grip on Jesus. And Jesus is telling the rich young ruler and he's telling me and he's telling us this morning, he is to be the greatest treasure in our life. You know, you don't have to convince people to come to church. You don't have to convince people to give liberally, generously. You don't have to convince people to share Christ. You don't have to convince people to forgive. You don't have to convince people to do the Christian life if you have a big view of Jesus. If you see Jesus as awesome and mighty and powerful and attractive and beautiful, you just naturally want to reorient your life to be in alignment with him. And so Jesus uses some hyperbole to describe how difficult it is for a rich man whose riches own him to enter heaven. The largest animal in this particular context was a camel. The largest animal in Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia was an elephant, okay, but they're in a particular, a different place. And he's making a point, if you have an eye of a needle, it'd be impossible for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. In the same way that a man or a woman who has an abundance of property and money will find it difficult to relinquish that in order to treasure Jesus. But again, it's not just riches. It could be that relation that you know is wrong, but you're unwilling to give up. It could be this enslavement that you don't want to give up. Here's what J.C. Ryle said. Many are ready to give up everything for Christ's sake, except one darling sin, and for the sake of that sin are lost forevermore. Are you saying that Jesus could be telling me that if I love this more than him and I'm unwilling to get rid of this, that I could go to hell? That's exactly what he's saying. What if I'm a believer? I'm a believer. We rest in the finished work of Jesus. It's not this spiritual rat race where we're constantly comparing and contrasting, but we need to evaluate our lives. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves. Are there areas where Jesus is not the greatest treasure? And the answer for everybody in the room is yes. Yes, I want to more and more, by God's grace, with your help. Jesus, I need your help. I want you to be first. I want to treasure you and love you. There's no phrase in the Bible, adults of the kingdom of God, children of the kingdom of God. So in simple faith and trust, we want to come to him and say, Jesus, would you help me? Would you help me treasure you above all things, above all persons, above all pursuits, above all ambitions? I need your help. And every single time we ask that you know what Jesus will do, he'll give us grace. The Father looks to whom he can actually pour out his favor and esteem upon, he who was broken and contrite in spirit. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. If you're not a Christian, you need to become a Christian. If you're a Christian and there's areas of your life that you know without a shadow of a doubt, boy, I've not wanted to relinquish that, or I need help, we'd love for you to pray. There's going to be people up here that would love to pray with you, encourage you, listen to you. You can come pray a prayer of confession, a prayer of commitment, but there should be, and it doesn't mean if you don't come up here, God's not doing it, but there should be spiritual movement in all of our hearts, right? Can we agree with that? Spiritual movement. Father, help me to lean in. Teach me your ways.